Father, now as we come to your word, we ask for your Spirit's help in illuminating what is here. Help us to see clearly what you would have us to see. May the word be divided rightly this morning, I ask in Christ's name, amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the book of Genesis, chapter 5, please. Have you ever been in a situation in life where you just think to yourself, what on earth is going on here? It's just maybe a strange or bizarre circumstance, and in the middle of it, you're just left wondering, what is even happening right now? I had a moment like that happen to me about two weeks ago. I was driving down 12-mile road after dark, and nearly every time that I drive down 12-mile road at night, I have multiple deer run out in front of me. In fact, I just hit a deer four nights prior to this night of which we are now speaking, so I'm driving slow, very attentively watching for deer. Well, I come over this hill, and there's a car coming the other way, and he has his brights on, and so I'm, I'm temporarily blinded, and just as I'm blinded by this light, I catch the silhouette of a deer that's standing on the shoulder of the road, and then I can't see anything. So I immediately hit my brakes. I come to almost a complete stop. There's nobody behind me coming. And this car still has his high beams on, so I I can barely see. But I I catch the silhouette of this deer, run across his car, panic, start back across the road, come back, and then launch himself right into me. Now, I've come practically to a full stop. This deer really hits me more than I hit him. It turns out it's a pretty good-sized buck, so I filled my buck tag, I guess, for the year. He hits me, he rolls over my hood, and then he proceeds to slide up my windshield. Now, again, I'm practically fully stopped, and at this moment, the deer and I basically make eye contact with one another (laughs) as he's sliding with his face smushed up against my windshield. And this deer and I, we kind of have a moment. It's like, hey, how are you? You Nice night for a walk, you know. Watch out for hunters. And then he rolls up over my windshield, across the roof of my car, and then off the back. And I'm sitting there parked in the middle of 12-mile road at night. I watch in my rearview mirror as he picks himself up and then saunters off into the woods as though nothing has happened. And I'm thinking, what on earth was that? It's just bizarre. What is even going on here? Sometimes we come to passages of Scripture that are a bit like that, where we look in the text and it just seems strange, sometimes even bizarre, and we're left asking ourselves, what is even happening here? When our text this morning in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 8, there are some really strange things that are happening in this passage, things that make you stop and go, what is even happening here? Now, almost all of chapter 5 is occupied by a genealogy, and so we're going to be able to move through that chapter a little bit more rapidly. But there are some really challenging things to understand when we get to chapter 6. In fact, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is perhaps the hardest passage to interpret in the whole book of Genesis. So the structure of my sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different than my normal structure. Normally, as I'm working through my study, I pull out a couple of the major application thoughts from the text, and I structure my sermon around those major ideas. But that's not what we're going to be doing this morning, because the greater difficulty this morning is simply understanding what is happening in our text. And so instead, the sermon is going to be organized around answering 
four questions from our text in order to understand what our text is actually saying. And so as we begin with chapter 5 and the genealogy from Adam down to Noah, the first question that we begin with is simply, what is the point of these genealogies? When you are doing your Bible reading, perhaps for your own devotional study or for a Bible study or for a small group, what is your usual response when you get to a genealogy? Skip, right? And if you don't skip, maybe your eyes kind of glaze over, your mind kind of checks out, and suddenly you come to the realization that you've skimmed your way down the whole genealogy and you don't have a clue what you just read. Or maybe you are the kind of person who puts a good faith effort. You, you make a valiant effort of understanding what's actually there. So you actually work hard to read down the list of names. But then you come to some names that just defy the laws of phonics. Take these, for example. Go ahead and try to pronounce those. I'm not going to. We struggle to know what to do with genealogies, don't we? What is the practical value of these things? And already in the book of Genesis, we're only five chapters in, and this is already the second genealogy that we've encountered. We've already seen Cain's genealogy last week. Now we're coming to Seth's genealogy. There are more genealogies to come in the book of Genesis. So isn't Moses getting just a little bit genealogy happy in this story? What's the point of incorporating these genealogies into the book of Genesis? There's actually a number of reasons for these genealogies. We're just going to look at two this morning. The first is that they move the story along to the critical people and the critical moments in the narrative. Now, I grew up loving to listen to books on tape, and, I, and by that I mean actual cassette tapes. And I had my own cassette tape player. Uh, it was about a little foot-long rectangular uh, thing, and it had a handle on it so that you could plug your headphones in and you could carry it around with you. And it was sort of, in those days, in my mind, the height of listening portability. You just carried around your cassette player. And that cassette player, it had a button on it because normally the tape would just slowly click along and you'd be listening. But if you wanted to move forward in whatever story that you were listening to, there was actually a button that you could press and hold down. It would quickly wind the tape forward so that you could move more rapidly through the story that you were listening to, to whatever it is that you really were interested in. Well, these genealogies are like Moses hitting and holding down the fast forward button in the history of humankind. He's taking us to the critical features of the narrative and moving us over great periods of history to do so. Because from the birth of Adam, or the, not the birth of Adam, excuse me, from the life of Adam down to the birth of Noah is a period of 1,056 years. Now let's just put that in context for just a moment because if we put all of the various genealogies and timelines of the Bible together, the period from Adam all the way to Jesus Christ in the, in the birth of the New Testament is a period of approximately 4,000 years, meaning that in the space of Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 to the end of this chapter, we cover a period approximately one quarter of biblical history. And in fact, if you add the 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, one-sixth of all human history is covered in this short genealogy. You might think that this sermon series has been moving pretty slowly, and maybe you're right about that. But I, in my own defense, I just want to say, by the time that this sermon is done, in the last 10 weeks, we will have covered a quarter of biblical history. So <laughs> just put that out there. We're moving. So these genealogies, they serve an important purpose of covering in a giant leap a whole swath of history and time 
in order to land on and settle on a person or event that is significant in biblical history. Why do these genealogies matter? Reason number two, they frequently contain subtle pieces of significant information. Now, we can admit that these genealogies, they don't normally contain the same kind of theological meat and immediate application value as other biblical passages. That is true. But that doesn't mean that there is nothing that we can practically glean from these genealogies. It just means that we often have to read a little bit more thoughtfully, a little bit more attentively to see what's actually happening here. So for the sake of time, we're not going to read line by line through the whole genealogy in chapter 5, but I'd like to note with you a couple of key highlights in this genealogy that I think are important. First, notice with me that the preamble of this genealogy identifies for the reader that this line is the family of promise, and this family is offering a kind of new beginning and a new hope for humanity. Read with me beginning in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he'd fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Now, you recall with me as this chapter opens that Abel is dead. And Cain, his brother, is a murderer in exile. The first human children, the first two children of Adam and Eve, they're gone. And yet, they're seems to be also this developing story with Cain's family that they are rapidly turning into a group of violent degenerates. We saw that last week. And despite that, there still remains a hope for humanity through the offspring of the woman, as God promised in Genesis chapter 3, but not through Abel, not through Cain, like we might have expected, but through the third son, through Seth. And notice the renewal here of the creation themes in this preamble. We read that God created man, created man in his own likeness, in his own image. He created them male. He created them female. And then he blessed them. We've heard those terms before, haven't we? These are echoes back from Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account. And then comes Adam, who is the son of Seth. We read that Seth was made in the image and the likeness of Adam, who in turn was made in the image and the likeness of God. In other words, this is the godly line from whom will one day come the promised offspring who will redeem and will restore the image of God that has been corrupted in man. And so this genealogy is an expression of a hope-filled promise for humankind. The second, notice with me that this genealogy emphasizes that death has begun its reign over humanity. These first men, as we read down, you'll notice they live for incredibly long periods of time. Most of these men live for a period of close to a thousand years. It's really remarkable. In fact, if you put these dates together, Adam lives down to a time that is only about 120 years prior to the birth of Noah. And so if we put that together, that means that Noah's father, Lamech, 
would have lived the first 60 years of his life with Adam still alive. Meaning that Noah, through his father Lamech, might have had a second-hand account from Adam of what life was like in the Garden of Eden. These men are living for such long periods of time that their lives are significantly overlapping one another. And yet, despite these long lives, the constant in this genealogy is death. If you just cast your eyes over the chapter, you'll notice this expression occurs again and again and again. And he died. Now, Abel is the first person in recorded history to have died, but he died through a violent act of his brother. But here we have death as the new normal, the new natural way of things in the world. And so while this genealogy presents a kind of new beginning for humanity, it is not presenting humankind with a clean slate. As the Apostle Paul says, so death reigned from Adam, dying they will die. And that is precisely what is happening here. But the third observation from this genealogy is that someone does not die. Someone in this genealogy escapes death. We work our way down seven generations in this genealogy and we come to verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now that's the place in the genealogy where we normally read, and he died, but not here. Now there's a lot that's going on there that we need to unpack. Enoch is the seventh member of this genealogy, and in biblical genealogies and in Hebrew genealogies in general, The seventh person in a genealogy is frequently one of the more important people in the genealogy. That's the way these genealogies are structured. And sure enough, we get here to the seventh person in the genealogy, and the pattern of death that has been established is suddenly broken. And and that's not only unique in terms of this short little ten-member genealogy, that's unique in all of biblical history and in all of human history. There's only one other person who has ever been recorded to have escaped death experiencing death, and that's Elijah. And when he escaped death, a fiery chariot from heaven comes down and sweeps him away. This is not the normal way of things. So what are we to make of all of this? The text tells us that Enoch walked with God. And that's a phrase that should evoke for us recollections of God walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. It's an expression that reveals that Enoch enjoys a unique degree of fellowship with God. We'll read later in the book of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11, that Enoch was a man of unique faith. In fact, when it goes on to define what faith is, Enoch is the example that is used for the definition of faith. And the question then that we should be asking is, well, what is Enoch believing in? And the answer is, he's believing in the promise of God that God made to the woman in Genesis 3.15 of an offspring who is going to come, who is going to deliver them from the curse. And as a result of his fellowship with God and of his great faith, God spares Enoch from death. Now, that raises all kinds of big theological questions for us. But the Bible isn't interested in answering those questions. So we're not going to speculate on those this morning. We just don't know the answers to all of those questions that come into our minds. But there is, I think, an important truth 
about Enoch and his death-defying life that is an intended foreshadowing in this genealogy. Because this genealogy is the early part of the eventual line of promise that is going to finally culminate in the birth of Jesus Christ. He is from this family. And yet, even in this line of promise, as we've already seen, death is reigning. Everyone is dying. Everyone is subject to the curse. But Enoch's deliverance from death foreshadows that someone is going to come from this very family, from Seth's line, who is going to be delivered from death. And who not only is going to be delivered from death, but who will defeat death. And in defeating death, this greater one to come will offer deliverance from death for all who will believe in him. Enoch is a foreshadow. He's a type of what's to come from this eventual line of promise. Now, Enoch here is the seventh member of this genealogy. In Luke's gospel, Luke records the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And he begins from Adam and works his way all the way down to Jesus. And of course, in that genealogy as well, Enoch is again the seventh member of that genealogy. The greater one to come, the one who defeats death, Jesus Christ, is the 77th member of that genealogy. Enoch is foreshadowing the greater one who will defeat death in his deliverance from death. Fourth and and finally, there's a contrast in this genealogy that's being drawn between the family line of Cain and the line of Seth. We're going to put the genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth up side by side on the screen so that you can note the similarities and the contrasts that are being drawn. Note that both genealogies have an Enoch. Cain builds a city, and he names it after his son, Enoch, which is in and of itself is an act of defiance because God condemned Cain as part of his judgment to be a wanderer. And we get only a little while, and Cain is settling down. He's building a city. He's refusing to wander. He's trying to establish himself on the earth. He's defying God. And in doing so, he builds this city, and then he names it after his son because he wants to make his name great on the earth. He wants to establish for himself a family whose name will be remembered on the earth. He's trying to exalt his own name. He builds, in other words, the first example of the city of man. But the Enoch in Seth's line is not known for seeking to make his name great. Instead, he's known for his walk with God and that God delivers him from death. He's a godly man. And then near the end of both genealogies, we come to a Lamech. And in both genealogies, the Lamech is the only person who gets to speak in the genealogy. Well, the Lamech from Cain's line is a violent polygamist, a man who boasts about his evil. And as we looked at last week, he he proclaims for himself this so-called song of the sword. It's an evil man. But here's what the Lamech from Seth's line says. Look at me at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he had fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Now Lamech is clearly a man of faith here. Because like Eve at the birth of Seth, Lamech at the birth of Noah is looking in the birth of this son for the one who is going to come and bring their promised deliverance. Perhaps he's thinking this son 
is the one who is going to deliver us from the curse. Perhaps Moses, as he's writing and recording this, you just have to wonder if he's thinking about his own parents, who Scripture tells us saw in Moses that he was a special child from God, a deliverer, that they recognized that in Moses. And Lamech recognizes this in his son Noah. This is a special child. This is a deliverer. And unlike the Lamech from Cain's line who exults in evil, this Lamech laments in the suffering that the curse has brought into the world. Now, knowing that God is the one who appoints all of our days and appoints the span of our years, I think you have to smile to see that the evil Lamech boasts of his 77-fold vengeance and then to see that the righteous Lamech lives 777 years. God just has a sense of humor sometimes. We get down to verse 32, and we read that after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The effects of the curse on the bodies of men was clearly more slow working in those days than it, was, than it is in our time. These men are living for great periods of time. But even that being the case, can you imagine what it must have been like to have toddlers running around the place when you were 500 years old? Just... Wow. That brings us about 1,500 years into human history after our eviction from Eden. And all of that now sets the stage from Adam down to Noah to the events that immediately precipitate the flood in Genesis chapter 6. You read in Genesis 6 verse 1, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. So there is something in this marrying of the sons of God to the daughters of man that displeases God and that incites his judgment. And the question then is, what on earth is going on here? This is where things begin to get very strange in our passage this morning. So that leads us to the second question we need to answer. Who are the sons of God, and what is the problem with them marrying the daughters of men? This is actually a very difficult question to answer. There are three possible answers that have been proposed throughout church history to that question. View number one is that the sons of God are early dynastic warrior kings. Perhaps these are ancient warlords who accumulated for themselves harems filled with numerous wives and concubines. The suggestion is that these kings violently took for themselves wives from this family of promise. They, They violently took them, added them to these harems that they were building, and thereby they incited God's wrath. That's one view. Now, this is the least popular among the three views, and in my opinion, it's the most It's the most troubled one. It's the least plausible option of all of the ones we could look at. And there's several reasons for that, but to me the fatal flaw is that there's no explanation for why the text would refer to these wicked kings as the sons of God. That that just doesn't seem to make any sense. And there's nothing in the literary context that would help us figure out why that would be the case. So that, that just doesn't seem to hold true. The second view is that the sons of God refer to the godly line of Seth, the men from the Sethite line, and the daughters of men they take for themselves are the wi- for wives are the women from Cain's line, the cursed line. 
So you have the sons of God, the sons of Seth, and you have the daughters of men who are the daughters from Cain's family. And the premise here would be that the problem in this is the intermarriage between the line of promise of Seth and the cursed line of Cain. And that makes some level of sense because later in Israel's history, there is going to be this problem, ongoing issue of intermarriage between the people of God and the pagan people in the land of Canaan. And so there's some contextual evidence for this. And there, I think there are some strong arguments in favor of this view. In fact, I think if we only had this passage to work from, this would be the most straightforward explanation of what's happening here. Many individuals that I respect highly hold to this view, and at times I myself have, hold, have held to this view, and I think that there are good reasons for it. But ultimately, I think that there are two reasons why this explanation falls a little bit short. First, the term sons of God is nowhere ever else used to describe the family of Seth. In fact, the exact phrase that's used here for sons of God is never actually used to describe earthly people at all. So this term, sons of God, would have to mean something here that it doesn't mean anywhere else for this view to be correct. That is not generally a good hermeneutical principle. The second issue is that the New Testament authors seem to take a different view of what's happening here. And whenever you're in doubt about what an Old Testament passage is saying, it is always a good principle to see if the New Testament authors address your passage, and then if they do, to agree with the guys who are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do we agree about that? That would be a good hermeneutical principle, which leads to view number three. The sons of God refer to fallen angels who are engaging in sexual relations with human women. Now, I fully understand how strange and bizarre and otherworldly that sounds, which is a significant reason that for many years I wanted to hold to view number two because this one just seems so weird. And yet, I think the biblical evidence points strongly in this direction. First, the phrase, sons of God, appears exactly like this six times in the Old Testament. Twice here in our passage in verse 2 and in verse 4, three times in the book of Job. In the first two chapters in the book of Job, this word appears, or this phrase appears twice. In both times, it's when Satan comes into the throne room of God, where the sons of God, the angelic hosts, are gathered around the throne. It says that Satan came in among the sons of God. Then later in the book of Job, chapter 38, when, Job, when God is answering back to Job's questions, God is asking Job a series of questions, and he says to Job, where were you when I created the world? When I laid its foundations and the sons of God shouted for joy. In other words, the angels were shouting praise to God as they witnessed what God was doing in creation. So this is a term there that's being used for angels. The sixth occurrence of this phrase is in Daniel chapter 3 when someone with the appearance of a son of God is standing in the midst of the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the point here is that this is a technical term that the Old Testament authors use for angels and for heavenly beings and never once for humans. The second reason is that the New Testament authors seem to indicate that these sons of God are angels. They, they do this in several places. We're just going to look at one text. We read it in the scripture reading this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as this righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Now here, Peter is providing two sets, and each set has two examples. Each set contains a negative example, someone who is judged, and a positive example of someone who is delivered. In the first set, we have the sinful angels who are judged, and then we have Noah and his family who are delivered. And then in the second set, Sodom and Gomorrah are judged, and Lot and his family are delivered. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot go together. They belong in the same narrative, which means that the first set of examples go together too. In fact, grammatically in that passage, it's very clear that these examples have to go together. So the question then is, if angels and Noah are being paired together, where in Genesis or where in the story of the flood do we see Noah being connected to the sin of angels? And the answer is in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where we read about these sons of God, which is the term that the Old Testament authors use exclusively about angels. And that connection between 2 Peter chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 6 is strengthened by the fact that Peter says These examples show us how God especially judges those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority, which would be exactly the crime that these fallen angels would be guilty of if our text in Genesis chapter 6, if the sons of God referred to fallen angels. Filled with lust for the beautiful daughters of men, they transgressed the lines of demarcation between angels and humanity that God had established. They were filled with lust for defiling passions, and as a result, they transgressed God's authority. That is exactly what happens in Genesis chapter 6. Now, some of you are are sitting back and you're thinking, this is just too weird. It it does not make sense. After all, how could spirit beings, non-corporeal beings, in other words, they don't have bodies, how could these spirit beings engage in sexual relations with with physical human women? That, That just doesn't make any sense. The Bible doesn't say clearly all that's going on here. Perhaps these angels simply demonically possessed men. That is an option. But it does seem that angels can take on something that is very like human form. Because later we're going to read the account of of when Lot is delivered. Two men who are angels, in the appearance of men, come into Sodom to deliver him. And, And these angels, they grab Lot and they remove him from the city square. They grab him and bring him into the house. And then later when he refuses to leave, they grab him again and they drag him out of the city. And then later Jacob, will read, will wrestle all night with an angel. So whatever these, whatever form these angels are taking, they aren't simply appearing as men, but they're really some kind of hologram that has no material substance. They can physically interact with the physical bodies of human beings. That's clear in the biblical text. So to just kind of reset what I'm saying is happening here, 
The overall situation of Genesis 6 as it opens is that fallen angels have begun lusting after human women. These angels transgressed the boundaries that God imposed and entered into relations with these women. Which means that what we have here is yet another example of creation rebelling against the Creator. And this cannot stand, which is why the judgment of the flood is coming. And it also presents a grave threat to humanity and to the seed of promise. Because angels are not made in the image of God. And what's worse, these are fallen sinful angels. And so for these angels to have relations with women and then to have children with them threatens the integrity of the human race and the seed of promise that's bringing deliverance in particular. This must be addressed, which is exactly what God will do. This whole situation is ugly, it is dark, and it speaks of the kind of chaotic depravity that is wreaking havoc in the post-fall, pre-flood world. Now, we are tempted to sit back and just think that this is just too strange and bizarre to be true. This, this must be myth or something like that. But we also need to remember that we are children of the post-enlightenment world, and we live in a culture that is hyper-materialist, hyper-naturalist. And so, if anything, we tend to underestimate the reality of which the spiritual world exists and interacts with our world. We at times need to be reminded that our battle is not against flesh and blood, the kind of political battles that we are constantly fighting with. And instead, our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I would suggest to you that this narrative would not have sounded odd at all to the first readers of this text, who are the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, who have just crossed through a sea and have just seen the gods of Egypt laid waste by these miraculous works of God. They're being fed through manna that is coming every single morning. They have no doubt of the spiritual realities of the world. And, if we're also being honest, this story wouldn't even be that odd to many other people in the world today, in cultures where there is a far greater appreciation for the interaction between the spiritual world and our world. Now, there's a warning in there also. We need to guard ourselves against two possible pitfalls we can fall into. One is to ignore the reality of the spiritual world and live in our material world and our natural world and just think that none of this stuff really exists or happens. But the second great pitfall is to have a an unhealthy obsession, preoccupation with the spiritual world. That is to open doors that ought to remain closed. That is to put ourselves in jeopardy of things that we oughtn't to mess with. So there is a healthy appreciation, but there's also a healthy distance that we need to have. And so we shouldn't speculate, as, as uh, Paul warns to Timothy, into endless genealogies and myths that lead off into vain discussions. Many have done that, Paul says, and resulted in shipwreck of their faith. It's these kinds of speculations that Paul is referring to. So we need to have an appreciation, but then be able to step back. Now we also have more that we still need to resolve in our text because in verse 4 we read that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So the third question we need to answer is who are the Nephilim? Well, we're not going to spend a great deal of time here, but we do need to address their identity for a moment. Because some have suggested that the Nephilim are the offspring of the fallen angels and the daughters of men. That these are a race of giant, violent superhumans, a hybrid race of demonic men who are these kind of demigods who are roaming the earth at this time. But I think Moses is actually saying the exact opposite of that. Notice that he says that the Nephilim were on the earth in the days the sons of God came into the daughters of men 
and also afterward. Moses is saying that the Nephilim were already around when these sons of God began coming to the daughters of men, uh, the, daughters of, of, uh, the daughters of men. These are not the product of those relationships. These men existed beforehand. In other words, Moses is saying these guys are merely men. Now, they are infamous men, men known for their violence, men who were celebrated in the days before the flood when evil was celebrated. They are men much like Lamech from Cain's family who were known for their exploits of violence, but they're just men, which is important because we're going to hear about these Nephilim again later in Scripture. Because when the spies give a report to Moses and to the congregation of Israel about the condition of the land of promise, the land of Canaan, they bring back a report that the land is filled with giant warriors. Giants who make normal people like you and I look like grasshoppers, is what they say. And it's on account of fear for these giant people that the Israelites lose heart, lose their faith in God, and ultimately are cut off from being able to go into the promised land. And these people, the text in Numbers 13 tells us, are none other than the Nephilim. And it is because of their fear of the Nephilim and their lack of trust in God's promises, because men seem big and God seems small, that the whole older generation of Israel is condemned to wander and die in the wilderness for 40 years. Only their children will get to grow up and eventually go into the land and defeat and wipe out the Nephilim. And Moses is writing this book of Genesis during that time of 40 years of wanderings because of Israel's fear of the Nephilim. And he's writing this story to the children who will one day go in and will have to defeat these Nephilim. And he is here for them demythologizing the Nephilim. Whatever their parents believed about these huge giant warriors, they aren't children of demons. These are not angel spawn. These are not superhumans that they cannot hope to defeat. They are just big men. But Israel has a bigger God. A God who already wiped these guys off the earth during the flood, just like he will wipe them off the land when the time comes for Israel to go in and possess it. Moses is saying, see what God has done. Know what he will do. The Nephilim are a lesson to Israel and they are a lesson to us that sometimes men seem very big. Sometimes our problems seem insurmountably large. Sometimes our fears seem very well-founded. But our God delivers his people. And there is nothing and there is no one who is too big for him. Now how do the Nephilim show up after the flood? They were in those days and also afterward. How do these guys survive a flood that wipes them out? And there's some good answers to that, and if you want to know the answer, you're going to have to tune into the podcast because we have to move on uh, in our text this morning to a bigger question and a question that I think is actually the most important question in this whole text. And that is this. Does God change his mind? Because we read in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only ever evil continually. The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out the man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God surveys the world that he made, and there is rampant lawlessness and evil everywhere. In Genesis, to this point, we have been accustomed to the phrase, and God saw, being accompanied by the phrase, that it was good. But here, God saw, and everything is filled with evil. And Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers of God. But here God looks and the earth is filled, but not with God glorifying image bearers. The earth is filled with violence. Every thought and every desire of the heart of those made in God's image is only filled with wickedness. Every thought, every intention, only evil all the time. Mankind is loving their sin, pursuing their sin, embracing their sin, all the while abusing, destroying, and killing one another. And God says, enough. Enough. The depravity of man grieves the heart of God. Grief at the sight of what man has become because of their rebellion. Grief because of his great love for us. And so God declares that he will bring justice that he will cleanse the world of the evil of mankind. But the text goes on to tell us that God regretted making man. In fact, God himself says, I am sorry that I have made them. So does God have regrets, and does God change his mind? Which is a vitally important question for us to answer, because if God does change his mind, then all of the promises of God are up for grabs. How do we know that he won't change his mind about saving us or about Christ returning for us or that we might get a few millennia into eternity and God changes his mind about the rest of our eternal future with him? So this is a big issue that we need to address. And I'd like to give us two truths to hold on to. First, the scripture is clear that God does not change. This is the doctrine of the immutability of God. God is not mutable. He does not change. Change. We read in Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will not fulfill it? The fact that God does not change is one of the aspects of his character that uniquely makes God, God. He is not like us. We change our minds all of the time. We are fickle, We are indecisive. We are capricious. And over time, our very character and beliefs change. Think back even just a decade. And how many of us could say that we are the same person today that we were 10 years ago? Not many. We change all the time. It is part of the nature of our humanity. We are changeable and constantly changing. But not God. God, as we sing, is from age to age the same. Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And God is saying this, Confidence in His promises are well placed because of the eternally unchanging character of the promise maker. So how then do we deal with texts where God seems to change His mind? Well, the second truth that we need to hold on to is that God frequently accommodates himself to the limitations of human language and human understanding. Our minds, our finite minds as finite human beings, are incapable of grasping 
the greatness, the mystery, and the glory of God's character, which means at times we are, our backs are right up against the mystery of who God is. His ways, his character, his person, his nature, all immeasurably above our thoughts. And yet, God, because God desires us to know him, he accommodates himself to the limitations of our language to describe the indescribable. And so we have things like anthropomorphisms. This is a big word, but it basically means anthropos, meaning man, morphe, meaning form. Things that describe something in terms of human form. And so we read that God has a strong and mighty arm, or that he holds the hearts of kings in his hand, or that he walks on the wings of the wind. And yet we know that God is a spirit who does not have a body like a man. And so these terms for arms and for hands and for feet, these are anthropomorphisms. They are metaphors that help us grasp in the finite ways that we can understand something of God's infinite power and glory that as they really are, we could never hope to understand or even begin to grasp even any truths about. As some have said rightly before, we will never know God fully, but we can endeavor to know him truly. That is what these kinds of texts do for us. Well, Scripture also has anthropopathisms. Anthropos meaning man, pathos meaning passions, things that describe something in terms of human passions and emotions. God does not have emotions in the same way that we do, in the same way that he does not have physical attributes in the same way that you and I do, nor is he subject to emotional change in the same way that you and I are. Because when we say that we are sorry or that we have a regret, what we mean by that is that if we had it to do over again, that we would do it differently, that we've made a mistake. But that's not what God means when he says that he regrets. And we know this from other places in Scripture. In 1 Samuel 15, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. God says, I regret this. But then in the very same chapter we read, and also the glory of Israel, another name for God, the God of Israel, will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So God says he regrets and then says he is not like a man that he should have regrets. What does that tell us? It tells us that whatever kind of regret that God has is not the kind of regret that man has. These are different kinds of regret. It is not a change in his mind or character because God knows the ends of things from before their beginning. None of what is happening has caught God off guard or surprised him. And so what we have in our text when we see that God is sorry and that God regrets is an expression of God's lament over the brokenness that sin has wrought in his world, in creation. But what we do not have is that God's mind or his plans or his promises have in any way changed. If we weren't sure of that, we have only to look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. God's promises are not at an end. He will remain faithful to deliver a people for himself, just as he promised to do. We spent most of our time this morning simply trying to understand what is a very difficult passage to understand. And so I want to just close with three very rapid-fire applications for us to consider as we close. Number one, look at where our sin leads us apart from the divine intervention of God. Apart from God intervening, our hearts would only want evil all the time. 
The lawlessness of the corrupted world is a picture of humanity without the intervention of God. Apart from God's intervening, rescuing grace, that would be us too. Second, know for certain that God judges evil. In our text, fallen angels transgress the boundaries divinely appointed between angels and humankind. Men celebrate their acts of violence. Every thought and desire of their heart is only evil all the time. And God does not turn his back. He does not ignore. He does not do as some parents do and pretend not to see what's happening right in front of him. Nor does he grant amnesty. He doesn't just give a pardon for what's happening. One of the greatest lies in our world is the belief that God will not judge sin. But he does. He did. And he will again. And for those who are in Christ, that truth is a source of profound comfort. But for those who are apart from Christ, that is the severest warning possible. So which are you? Finally, know for certain that God keeps his promises and that he does not change. God does not abandon his promises. He does not change his mind. Our future is not in the hands of some capricious God subject to his every passing whim and fancy. God remembers his word and he sees Noah. And this was his plan all along because the one who makes the promises is not like us. He does not change. And so our hope is safe and secure. Now close with words from one of the songs that my kids so often love to sing. Our God is good and true. He cannot lie to me and you. You can be sure of this. God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this truth that as we read in 2 Peter this morning, that God, you know how to deliver the godly from trials and that you know how to reserve judgment for those who practice evil. And so, Father, as we rest in your promises and the hope that you have redeemed us, that you have rescued us from the wrath to come, we pray that we would be active in the work of proclaiming the good news of the gospel to those who remain under your wrath. Father, we thank you for your unchanging character, to know that your promises are true because of who you are. And so we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.